This morning, it's a missions service. Um, my dad would have been here, but he's still, can I say, at that final stretch. He's seeing the goal line, but he's still running and he's still pushing. So um, the shingles is finally, can I say, finished, but now it's the side effects, the whole once it nerve ends that's paining and yeah. I feel sorry for him, but at the same time, sometimes I just laugh with him because I mean, there's nothing else we can do. It's it's so unfortunate, like having touch and it's so. I think to myself every time when I was younger. Now I'm old and I'm sitting behind a computer working, so I don't get to be stupid as I was. But when I was younger, I used to like be very stupid, and so I get these roasties, like slide over the grass or on tar road or paving or whatever it is, and then you have like the skin go off. And every time I touch it, I was like, ah, and it hurts. And then when we speak to one another, he says it feels like that. So I laugh at him. I'm saying, that's such a shame. <laughs> but yeah, no, we thank the Lord. Despite it all, two things that we can definitely say thanks for is, number one, that God is pulling him through. And giving the topic that we've been, uh, can I say, discussing the last few weeks, uh, he uses every single trial to work something in us. And even in this trial, we had the privilege to chat and I'm pretty sure I might not know what it is but I'm pretty sure he knows what character God is forming in him as well going through this but this morning we are basically turning from James and we'll be looking at a different passage because it's a mission Sunday and instead of focusing strictly on can I say mission specifically and I I hope and I pray that all of you here know the gospel and I hope that it is in you and we will touch on it on the sun missions morning I mean, there's nothing else we can do but mention the gospel and the importance of the gospel. But I want us to focus on something a little bit different. More almost the role of the church, specifically within missions and after someone came to salvation. It's easy for us to pray and say, listen, there needs to be people that go out into the world, proclaim the gospel, evangelize, and the gospel goes out. And if God's gracious, people come to salvation. Now they come to this church or any church for this matter, but in our case to this church, what now? What role do we fulfill in the life of this new believer? Somebody might have a terrible past, somebody might have a good past. Um, what do we do? And to do this, I want to walk through, can I say, a narrative, a little story of probably one of the greatest transformations, conversions, I don't know what to call it, in the Bible, and that is the transformation and conversion of the Apostle Paul. Back then, he was called Saul, and we find this story essentially in Acts chapter 9. So please turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll be working our way through to verse 31, although we won't be reading all of it. I mean, it's, it's lengthy. And if we wanted to read all of the accounts, we would have to basically look at both chapter 9 22 and 26. So in several, three times essentially in the book of Acts, this account is mentioned, which is pretty impressive if you think of it, because of all the conversions in the Bible, this is the one that's got this amount of importance, because it's both unique and incredible and has a huge impact, not just on the early church, but to us today. Now, one of the reasons that makes this unique is Saul himself was a very, very unique person. Um, I mean, he was, was born a Jew, but he had a Roman citizenship, which was back in those days amazing. It already put him in a high bracket. He was a Pharisee, 
because of his education. Um, he was a Greek, or he's a Pharisee by, by Hawaii and connect with. He was a Greek in his type of education. And over time, we see actually Paul become a Christian. So what he believed was he was a Christian. So he was so unique, he touched several aspects. And the way he got to that final point of touching the lives of the early church, touching the lives of us even today, I think the origin story is amazing. And it helps us and it teaches us this incredible story, essentially, of what missions is and what impact the church had on Paul. Paul was originally a very zealous. He was energetic. He, he had everything in him to persecute the church. And later on, Paul became a passionate and I would say probably the greatest ever missionary for Christ, going through sufferings that we ourselves haven't even seen for the sake of Christ. Although this might be a historical story and a historical account, it actually gives us so much more information on how our lives can change through the gospel and how our lives should change because of the gospel, as well as how us as a church should function or react towards new believers. So this morning, I want you to bear with me as we will be exploring two sides of the coin at the same time. The first side is how we were and what missions is all about and how we approach it. But on the other side of the coin is now that we are saved, how do we react towards those people who come to salvation? Keep both of these lines in mind as we look at the story of Saul. Just before we continue with your Bibles open, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us some history as well as to how people like the Apostle Paul came to salvation and who he was, helping us understand, Father, a past, what you have done and what it led to. Father, thank you that we have your word. Thank you that you have kept it safe. And Father, as we will be reading your word and studying your word, Father, may you touch us. May you start a fire in our hearts, a burning desire for the gospel. Father, may you touch us and drive us eagerly that we will have a passion for the lost like we ought to. That we will have a desire to see lost souls come to salvation. To salvation. Father, we pray and ask that as we will be looking at this through the theme of missions this morning, that we will first understand who you are, Father, what you have done for us. But Father, help us to be bold for you. Help us to be fiery for you. Help us to protect the gospel and drive it forward. And Father, most of all, we pray and ask that you will work in us. May you transform us as a church into the image and likeness of Christ. Father, will you work in us that we will truly be a church that brings glory and honor to your name. Father, not just by what we believe or what we teach, but Father, by what we do and how we act and how we respond to your word and how we respond to the lost. Father, may you work faith in us that when Christ returns that he will find faith in us, that we will be a light in this dark world. Father, we place us at your feet knowing that you are the one that enables us, you are the one that strengthens us, you are the one that gives us what we need. And Father, our desire is to glorify you 
and to uplift your holy name. Thank you that we can do this through what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We start off the story basically saying, Then Saul, still breathing, in verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, and asked letters from him in the, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he may found any that he, he found anyone who were of the way, I love that word for Christians, um, of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Essentially, he wants to go to Damascus and arrest these people. Now, one of the things that's striking here is it's opening the story, introducing to us Saul, but with a specific attitude. This is an attitude of breathing threats and breathing um, murder or slaughter. This breathing essentially means breathing in, which means he's living in this atmosphere, in this consistent idea of um, threats and murder and slaughter, which means he was consumed by it. He was energized by it. He was pushing everything he had, all of his energy into this one task to threaten the church, the disciples, people of the way, and to even kill them. We were introduced essentially to this character Saul when he was standing there as Stephen was stoned to death, listening to his amazing sermon of Stephen, and then standing there as they place his garments before his feet. Now it is believed that the mere fact that they had to place the garments at the feet of Saul means he was the one leading that whole story. He was essentially the leader or the orchestrator or the one in charge at that moment. And so one of the first things we see about him is he's this brutal man. He doesn't care about killing Christians. But the second thing that actually stood out to me was not just that fact. It was actually that he went to the synagogues and asked them if he can go to Damascus. This is actually not showing us a man that is out for just vengeance and anger and he just wants to do these different things no he thought that what he was doing is righteous he thought he's doing it for god he thought what he is doing is a good thing and so he goes to damascus or, or to the church in jerusalem and says to the leaders listen i want to go to damascus i've heard that that these people of the way they are growing over there and i want to go there and i want to go and arrest them i want to bring them to jerusalem essentially so they can be tried and judged and probably even killed. And so this zeal of the Apostle Paul, in our eyes might look at it like, oh, what a bad man. But in those days, being a Pharisee, being submissive to the leadership, going and doing everything that was, can I say, required of him to an amazing extent, he was not a bad man. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was doing this for God. He thought that this, this energy that he had and that he's pouring into this thing is for a good cause. Now, if you think of it, we ourselves might sometimes be exactly like that. We might have been this person that has poured our energy and everything into what we thought was good before Christ. We might have been zealous for, let's say, building business, providing for our family, being a good mother, pushing everything we have into school. Um, and we might think to ourselves, but I'm a good person, am I not? 
I am doing everything I am supposed to. Similar to how we see um, when Jesus spoke with the rich young man. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm a good person. No, Paul thought or Saul thought at this moment he's a good person. And he hasn't just tried his best. He was actively doing it. Right? He's doing everything he's supposed to to an amazing extent. We might have been the same if it wasn't for Christ. That has moved our minds away from those worldly things and said, you know what, look at Christ. Sometimes our passions and our zeal and our energy towards this specific goal um, takes our focus away from the things that's really true. Um, t- take our focus, let me just go find, I just knocked over all of my pages, which is not good. There we go. Takes our focus away from the truth of the gospel, takes our focus away from Christ and who Christ is, and we start misplacing it, or we even justify ourselves because we are doing good. We were like that. But on the other end of the spectrum, now that we are saved, and we can look at ourselves and say, oh, wow, okay, just like Saul was an enemy um, of Christ, we were enemies of Christ. We were enemies of God. Romans tells it very clearly that we were enemies of God. In Ephesians, it tells us that um, we want nothing to do with um, Christ or with God. Several passages in the Bible just tells us, you know what? We hate God. There's nothing in us essentially that's good. We hate God. We're enemies of Him. So as Saul was an enemy of God, we were like that. But we can sit there and say, we've heard sermon after sermon about this, and we understand this fact. And so the other side of the coin is, now that you know these things, what do you do with a person that doesn't know it yet? Now that you know that you were an enemy of God, what do you do to the person that is zealous but for the wrong thing? What do you do to the person, or for the person in this case, that are pushing and putting, putting all of his energy into the wrong thing? No acknowledgement of Christ. They might go as far as saying that I'm doing it for God. See, Saul thought he's doing it for his God. He was under the conviction that what he's doing is righteous before God. So as a church, we need to know, listen, we were like that, but there's people out there that are still like that. But another thing is, what do we do if we hear about a person that is as bad as Saul? I mean, I constantly think of what's happening in um, Cape Town as we go to Cape Town in the past with with COVID, it, it kind of stopped. and So we haven't been there recently, but I still get updates. While we were there, I met this guy who is quite an inspiration for me, an ex-gangster, a murderer, a drug dealer, a guy that has brought a lot of people to fall. He's a bad dude, very bad guy. But the church came and saw him not as this gangster. They saw him as this lost soul that needs Christ. Another guy that we met the last time we were there, the two of them were enemies. They were in opposite gangs if they saw one another they would literally kill each other that is how bad it was right but this one guy came to salvation and he looked at this other guy his enemy back in the day he's can i say he hates him back in the day he looks at him and says this is a lost soul that needs christ and he went to him and he was willing to preach the gospel with him obviously in wisdom there was there was something that went with him enemies gangster enemies like we might like look at our situation right now and say i don't like this person or i don't like this person or i hate this person but it's all word these guys will literally kill one another right literally but when god did something they looked at this guy and 
forgot the past, forgot what he did, and looked at him as a lost soul. Not as who he is, but who he could be in Christ. The other guy, not of who he was, but who he is now in Christ. Saul might have been a bad guy, but his life is about to change. And we continue and read that as, as Saul got essentially permission, he takes up a journey and he moves towards Damascus. Now Damascus is approximately 160 miles north um, or, yeah, north of Jerusalem. And in order to get to Damascus, Paul had to pass through Samaria. Now, in Acts chapter 8, we read that Philip went into Samaria and he started preaching the gospel. And people came to salvation. In fact, there was like a revival in Samaria and people started changing. And so for Paul to go from Jerusalem with the intent to go and catch people in Damascus, had to move through Samaria and hear the gospel and see people's lives changed. And I don't know, but I think in a sense this must have started to irritate uh, Paul quite a bit, Saul in those days. See, a caravan needs to take about six days in order to get to Damascus, and it's believed that approximately the sixth day is where the story takes off. He's passed through Samaria. He has seen all these things. He has heard about the revival. He has done all of that stuff. Can I say there was this build-up inside of him in, of sorts, and all of a sudden, there's this bright light that hits him, and he falls flat to the ground. And as he falls to the ground, he hears this voice, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? Now, we might not encounter Christ like that in our lives. This is, like I said, very unique. But here Christ comes and he says, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? If we look at the way in which he says it, he doesn't say, Soul, why do you persecute me? Or he comes in with this, this kind of say, scary attitude. He comes with empathy and he says, Soul, soul. As if you're supposed to know better. Remember, he might have just gone through Samaria. He might have heard all these things. In fact, he has heard the sermon of Stephen. It is believed he might have even heard Jesus preach. And yet he was blinded because of his zeal, because of his self-righteous movements. Jesus comes with a slide and says, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? Another thing that stands out is the fact that Saul has hurt Stephen. Saul might have hurt Christ. Saul went through Samaria. But Jesus had to come himself. Jesus came and he did everything. You see, Corinthians tells us so clearly that we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want to go with him. We don't pursue him. Saul went and he pursued what he believed was right and he was against Christians. In our case, we see that we pursue other things. We pursue happiness. We want to be happy. Or we pursue health. We want to be healthy. In some cases, people will like, can I say, deny Christ, deny Christ until the time that they are not well. And then they bring Jesus on as a spare wheel and say, God, please help me. Heal me. Heal me now, God. You're the God of love. Aren't you supposed to heal me? But right through the past, they were a soul. They might have had good intentions, thought that they were serving God. 
but they didn't know Christ. Jesus is not a spare wheel. People will go as far as pursuing wealth or peace, but they do not search after God. And so Christ is the one that has to come and do this amazing thing. In Saul's case, it was so profound that he came with his light and knocked into the floor and is laying there flat. In fact, it was such a big thing that the people traveling with him could hear the voice but didn't even see anything. But it was profound. But Paul sat there and he could hear and he speaks. Paul sat there or Saul sat there and he said, Lord, who are you? The more I'm looking at this, I'm thinking to myself, did Paul kind of know this is God? Wasn't it God? And he's doing this for God. What's going on? Who's this voice? What's, what's happening? And then Jesus replies once again, I am Jesus whom you persecute. See, two things stand out. Firstly, Paul was not persecuting the church. And if you've heard sermons on this passage, you might have heard this. Is persecution is not directed towards the church it is always directed against christ if somebody persecutes the church they're persecuting christ it can bring us at ease but in this case we need to remember as well we were like that in sorts we might have thought that we were doing the right thing and we might have kind of say attack the church or there's people out there right now that are attacking the church they are attacking christ what do we do we don't wish death on them. We need to look at them and say, they might be a soul. They might have the right intentions. We need to show them Christ and pray that Christ will do his work. But this encounter was so big that Paul fell flat on his face. A while back when Pastor Mario was preaching here, and it's an illustration that still sticks in my mind, he was preaching about the gospel. And... Um, He's very passionate about the gospel. There's now one guy that I've heard preaching about the gospel that's fiery passionate. That's him. And while he was speaking on it, he said that the gospel is like this train. Now imagine for yourself these big trains, not a South African train. Let's go with a big functioning fast train. The, what's a train in Gau? The Gau train. Think of it like that. It's this fast, big thing. And you're standing on this train tracks, and this thing is coming towards you. That's the gospel. And if the gospel makes an encounter with you and if you and the gospel connect and Christ takes hold of you through the preaching of the gospel, you will not be the same afterwards and you will fall flat. This body cannot withstand a train. We cannot withstand an encounter the size of a train hitting us. And this is what's happening here with Saul. The gospel was preached. He's known of all of this stuff. And Jesus comes and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he reaches out and he touches him and he blinds him. We need to know that our duty is to ensure that the gospel goes out. Our duty is to ensure that we preach the gospel. And then as a church collectively pray that God will move as the gospel is being preached. That people will be hit by the train of the gospel. You see, if I were to stop here just for a second... One of the things that I've noticed is becoming more and more a problem when it comes to evangelism is that people that goes out and does the evangelism and does the preaching and reaches out, thinks they are in charge of the salvation of that person. I'm going to go out and I'm going to convince this person of Christ. I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to lead him to Christ. 
or I'm going to run this massive crusade and have these amazing preachers come out and thousands of people listen to the gospel and they say, we make this amazing altar call and people come forward. Guess what I've done? Oh, I've led people to Christ. No. As a church, our responsibility is to guard the gospel, preach the gospel, and then have faith in God that He will move with the gospel. We need to have faith and pray that the gospel will go out and have its work. Let God do the touching. Let God do the transforming. Let God do the converting and changing of people's hearts because we can't. We're fallible. We are at risk at times thinking that when we preach the gospel, it is our responsibility to change people. Stephen had an amazing sermon a while back. Paul heard it or Saul heard it. That didn't change him. He might have heard the gospel going through Samaria. That didn't change him. It was when Jesus came and touched him directly. And in an instance, this profound event took place and he's changed. And as we go through the book of Acts, and in fact, majority of the New Testament, we see that this change was not just small. It was huge. But to get to that huge change, there was still a little bit of a journey going forward. Another thing that we see as well is that when Jesus touched him, he didn't touch him with prosperity. He didn't touch him with um, blessings. He didn't touch him with amazing things. No. Jesus pointed out essentially sin. He says, why are you persecuting me? You think that you're doing good. Why are you persecuting me? See, Saul must have been living at that point with conflict in his heart. He must have had troubles in him, but he's justifying it and he's zealous about it, but there's something weighing him down. In Acts chapter 9, verse 5, we hear that it says, it is hard um, for thee to kick against the goats. In other words, basically what this means is, this is an easy soul, is it? There's something in you that's pulling you down. There's something that is making it difficult for you. This isn't easy. He's covered with guilt. He's understanding and knowing, listen, I have done something wrong, but he doesn't know what it is yet. And so Christ comes and he points it out. You see, when Christ comes and touches a person, he reveals their sin to them. And sin needs to be heavy on our hearts. We need to understand as well that when somebody comes to salvation or if somebody is touched by the gospel and they are under this conviction, sin is going to be heavy on their backs. They're going to be covered in guilt. We need to understand this. Saul might have thought that he's doing all of this stuff for um, God. And it turns out that he was doing it against God. When we preach the gospel, when we go out and we preach salvation, and Christ touches somebody, they will be, can I say, their sins will be revealed, and they will be touched by Christ, and their sins will start weighing heavy on their hearts. And this is where the church comes into play. A lot. Because while Saul was blinded, and he is taken to Damascus, and he's sitting there for three days blind, can't see a thing, Jesus, or God, is working in another character called Ananias. And he goes to Ananias, and he says, listen, I want you to go there and talk to Saul. Go pray for him. And Ananias sits there, he's like, whoa, wait, wait, Saul of Tarsus? Are you sure this is the guy I have to go to? I'm paraphrasing here. You can look at, at, at Acts to the exact words. 
but this is how I'm, I'm seeing how it's playing out. See, Ananias was not like this fancy guy. He was just a disciple. Acts tells us he's a certain disciple. I tried to find out if there's anything more. It's the only time we read about Ananias, and in this case, he's just a simple disciple. There's nothing fancy. But God comes to him and he says, I want you to go there and pray for him. He's sitting there, he's like, whoa, soul of Tarsus? Isn't it like a different soul that you're talking about? Isn't he the one that is persecuting your people? And he's pointing out to God, listen, this is the guy persecuting your people. And then God says, don't worry, he's praying. And then God continues and says, and I will point out to him the sufferings that he will endure. Essentially, I will show him what he will endure or have to endure being my servant. The transformation was great in the first place, but your soul is also showed what he's going to go through for the sake of Christ. In our evangelism, this helps us understand two things. Firstly, is it is kind of important for us to point out to people, you know what? Christianity is not a prosperity um, club. Christianity is not, oh, listen, now that you are... A, Christian, everything is going to be nice and easy and happy-go-lucky. No. Scripture is very serious about it. We're going to lay down our lives for Christ. We're going to suffer for His name's sake. We're going to be hated by the world. And if a person sits there in front of you and says, I don't care. I will suffer what I have to, but Christ is amazing. That He died for my sins that God would do something so amazing because I have sinned against Him. When His sins is revealed and it's weighing heavy on Him. I hope that one day, if you have not already experienced this amazing moment when Christ opens the eyes of a sinner. And if you haven't, pray that God gives you the boldness that you will fulfill, can I say, our God-given duty to go out and preach the gospel and make disciples. In Ananias' case, God said, go. God gave him a bit of confirmation, and Ananias said, okay, Lord, I'm going to have faith in you. And he went immediately, and he prayed for Saul. One of the things that stands out is he was just talking to God, saying, isn't this the guy that's persecuting your people? But in faith, he walks in, and he greets Saul with these words, brother Saul. Put yourself as this local church in this man's shoes for a moment. Let's say there's this gangster out there, not gangster, let's say it's a politician. And he is sure of it to get rid of and arrest and maybe even kill Christians and the church is the right thing to do and he's zealous about it and he does it a lot. Which means there's a lot of people that are put in prison and we know him by name. And God tells you, go and pray for that person. What will your response be? Will you act in obedience to God and go pray for him? Will you act in obedience to God and maybe spread the gospel to him? Or will you fall back in fear? Or can I say complacency sitting, you know, I'm comfortable over here. We've got a good thing going at church. I don't need to risk my life right now. Life is starting to get better or it is very good um, I'd rather not now there's somebody else out there 
hey, maybe let the pastor do it. Or the guy in church, you know, that one guy that he's the missions guy, we'll talk to him and say, listen, this guy needs prayer. The Lord has laid it on my heart, but I'm going to tell you to go and do it. No. As a church, if the Lord leads you, no matter how risky, dangerous it might sound or seem, in obedience we need to act. Our call in missions is not just to have tents going around or massive crusades going around preaching the gospel and then leaving. Our call for missions is a lifelong attitude. It is a burden for the lost souls out there. It is the idea of seeing, listen, here is this guy and I don't care about his past. I can see a possible future, even if it means that I will be killed. I think often when I think about this, about what happened in the Amazon jungle, I don't know if you know the story. I learned it in school, actually. That's where I heard about the story the first time. Then I ended up watching the movies and I heard some testimonies. Um, and for a moment now, the name has um, escaped me. But what happened was is these missionaries would go in by plane into the Amazon to a dangerous headhunter tribe to preach the gospel. And at a point, it seemed like they were accepted because they would bring them food and gifts and they were starting to build this relationship because they were convicted this is the group that they have to go to. And in one of their trips, when they touched down, the whole tribe was there and they thought, I've got a breakthrough. And as they exited the airplane, the tribe killed them all. And months, if not years, of preparing for that moment to preach the gospel ended up in death. They didn't care. The amazing thing is that the wife, I think it was two women, they did not hold it against that tribe and they went back. And in the end of the day, one of the guys who were there at the plane killing these missionaries ended up becoming a Christian, came to know the Lord and was used by God amongst his tribe to bring even more people to salvation. Why? Because those wives, even though they were in sorrow, they said they will continue where their husbands um, stopped. They gave their lives, but we will continue. They didn't hold it against the tribe. They didn't hate the tribe. They didn't even look at them and said, you know what, they are lost cause. They said, I'm willing to lay down my life as well, but let God be glorified. Let Christ be preached. This is the type of attitude that I've seen here in Ananias. He might have lost his life. He had faith that he wouldn't, but he might have. But he goes there and he preaches, or he, he prays for, not preaches, he prays for Saul. The scales fall off Saul's eyes, and he baptizes Saul. You see, Ananias not only went there in obedience and prayed for Saul, but he led him. He explained to him the first steps of what it means to be a Christian. Ananias did it. A certain disciple. We don't know anything else about him. We don't know if he's a leader. We don't know if he's high up. It just says a certain disciple. And that's it. You might sit here as a certain disciple and be used by God, maybe even profoundly. You might be led to pray for, witness to, and lead somebody in the steps of God, in the steps of what it means to be 
a Christian in the first steps now that you have been touched by the gospel and years from now it might be another soul and you might even not you might not know it now but it comes from your immediate obedience as a church our responsibility is that when God faces someone or on our hearts we need to act don't throw it to someone else don't just say listen I'm gonna stay in my inner room and I'll pray for him go go out risk your life if you're not willing to risk your life you might still be soul you see it tells us that immediately he got up and he ate he said okay for three days I haven't eaten I haven't drank anything I'm gonna build up strength but we see why he said, I'm going to immediately get up and build up strength. Because he ate and he drank and immediately he went to the synagogues and he started preaching Christ. Not immediately he got up and he went to the synagogues and he fulfilled his original mission. No, he was transformed. He was changed. And what happened was, is at the baptism, it was this profession, this proclamation by Paul to the church and the believers saying, this old man has passed away. Look, I am new. And immediately, not just through baptism that he um, proclaimed it, but his actions shows that he was new. Because the people that he came to persecute in the first place, to arrest and to kill, he became that people. And he stands there in the synagogues and he says, I'm going to preach Christ. I'm going to preach Jesus. And boldly he started preaching in the synagogues, to such a point that the Jews started getting mad at him. Note he didn't delay. He didn't stop. This train, this encounter with Jesus was so big. He said, I have to tell people about it. I have to show people, you know what? Something has happened in me. I have changed. And people saw it. I am constantly thinking about the words of John Lennox and one of the things that Saul showed was that his life has changed and in witnessing John Lennox you often uses this can I say way of witnessing when somebody asks him how do you know God is real or how do you know what Christ is saying is true then he sits there and his answer is plain and simple and John Lennox is a brilliant mathematician he doesn't debate he doesn't come with his fancy things. He says, because God has changed me. See, Saul can do the same thing. He says, I was like that. I used to be this person. Philippians, we see a lot of these things. He says, yeah, I've, I'm even a trained person. There's so much that he can say about himself. But he ends up saying, but it's not me. Look at Christ. Look at what he has done in me. See, it wasn't the Sumerians that changed Paul. It wasn't Stephen that changed Paul. It wasn't anything else. It was Jesus himself that came and he changed him. And it was so big that his life reflected it. If we want to be like Saul, and can I say, we, we, we have this desire to follow Paul as he follows Christ, which I think is a very good thing to do. Obviously, we need to follow Christ directly, personally. But Paul is an example that we can really follow as he followed Christ. 
he endured and he suffered and he went on and he pushed forward and it started like this with a transformation a change and was instant he immediately was bold and he said i have changed if you cannot sit here this morning and say why is god real because i have changed then you don't know what god has changed in you if you can't sit here and say i used to be like this look at me now then this profoundness of the gospel hasn't hit you like a train just yet. But if you can sit there and say, oh, I used to be this, but thank God that through Jesus Christ, I am a different person. Through your baptism, you show that I was like this. This man has passed away. He's dead. Look, I'm new. That is your proclamation through baptism. And Paul reflected it immediately. And that very thing that Paul came to kill, he became. And later on we see, just a few days later, Paul just got permission to go kill these people or catch them. Now they are taking up that responsibility and they start persecuting Paul. And they put guards by the gates and they stand and wait for Paul day and night or so back then still. Day and night they wait for him so they can kill him. Days ago, keep this in mind, days ago, Saul was there to kill the church. And now we read that that very people takes him and says, come, your life is in danger. Let us help you out safely. They are risking their lives. And Ananias risked his life. And he was there in the start and guided him. Now the church comes as the body accepts him as a brother immediately not holding his past against him, not saying, you know what, he used to kill our people. Let's just hold back and let them find him. No. They go as far as saying, we will now risk our lives and we will help him out of the walls. And they dropped him in a basket. Our responsibility as a church is to be there for new believers. Our mission goes beyond just preaching the gospel. It goes to the point of discipleship even if it means risking our lives so that person a soul can come to salvation the church reacted to Saul by helping him and they didn't even ask questions they accepted the fact that God has done a marvelous work in him God has changed him and in faith, they have taken that profession and that statement and they acted towards him like a brother immediately. The challenge for us as a church is, let's say this guy comes who used to persecute. Firstly, will you accept him into this church? Or will you be like, whoa, no, uh, stay outside. Maybe he's a spy. Maybe he's here to kill us. Maybe he's here to gather intel. Uh, whatever human thoughts might cross your mind. Or do you say, this is a soul that needs to know God more if he comes to salvation and he went through baptism can we say his past I don't even bring into memory again he's now a new creation in God we so easily hold the sins of the past against people it doesn't mean that we cannot remind them to not fall back into it but we don't hold it against them we act out of love because we were first loved. We show grace because God has first showed grace to us. 
And God has showed us such an amazing grace. If we can respond to a brother in Christ with this little bit, why not? We need to pick up our cross sometimes and follow Christ, even if it means that we might die. After he escaped, Paul was taken to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and you can imagine for yourself, I mean, he just came from there. These people know him. And he walks not to the synagogue and the leaders, but he walks to the church. Imagine for yourself, you have no idea what's happening. You know, this guy just walks in, which means you don't even know of what happened in Damascus. He walks in, wow, what are we doing? What is our response to be like? As a church focused on missions, focused on the lost souls that's out there, how do we respond to a person like this? The church there said, whoa, whoa. Listen, this is a dangerous man. He's coming to kill us. And then Barnabas comes up, and now he might be risking his life. He's risking his reputation. So many things he is risking, and he advocates for Saul. And he says, no, guys, you don't understand. He was baptized in Damascus. I heard him preach in Jesus' name in Damascus. And as he advocated, the church welcomes Saul immediately. As a church, if we are focused on the mission, if we understand that we need to not only preach the gospel, and let's say pray for the missionaries that's out there, maybe support the missionaries that's out there, you can even be involved in the mission of our church. Every month, um, except if, if something falls up, we go out and we reach out in the Oba Park area. And we preach the gospel. And we hand out tracts. You might even be involved with that. But as a church collectively, it goes further. Together, we need to be the body of Christ and disciple new believers. Each one of us, it's not just the responsibility of the leaders. Each one of us, we are the body of Christ. God has given each one of us a gift. Use it in the edification of the body. God has given each one of us everything that we need to know. We are equipped to know the Bible and to guide a person, even if it is just telling them, now that you are saved, you need to be baptized. It's not that hard. But for us, we might feel scary. We might think we might risk maybe our jobs. We might risk our lives. Whatever the risk is, does the risk outweigh their possible reward? See, in Saul's case, they've risked their lives and later on became the greatest missionary that we've ever seen. Do you think Ananias would have known that? Do you think the early church knew this? Because when the call came, they still prayed about it. They said, we need to send out someone. It wasn't, nope, Paul. We've heard about it 10 years ago or a few years ago. Uh, this is the guy. We need to send him. No. They all gathered together and they prayed. And then Paul and Barnabas was set apart to go and evangelize. It was years later. But it started with this. We need to know that God will use people. And we might not know what his plan is. One thing we know for a fact, if we look at the mission of the church, it is not to be pew warmers, it is not to be spiritual gluttons, but it is out to be fit and to preach the gospel and to bring people to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. And then when they are saved, to start working. And discipling. Let me tell you, 
this. If you have not discipled anyone before, it is much easier to just preach the gospel and get out of there than it is to disciple. The real energy is put into discipleship. The real challenges comes when you disciple someone because there's a twofold thing that happens. First is, that person is a young Christian. No one just becomes mature immediately. It took Paul several years before he went out that God prepared him to go preach. Discipleship takes a long time, and we need to have patience with young believers. But we need to guide them, direct them, educate them. The second thing is, in order to disciple, God needs to work in each one of you individually. If you have somebody and you say, I'm going to disciple this person, you need to submit to God that God first works in you. And you need to allow God to work in you. And that's why I believe discipleship is very, very hard. Because it requires you to have a relationship with God. And that God will first work in you that you can be one step ahead and lead somebody with you. If they overtake you, if they pass you in spiritual maturity, in whatever things, you need to say thank you God you have done your job well the church took Paul and they helped him later when he was under persecution in the um, in Jerusalem they sent him to Tarsus and there they trained him they educated him they discipled him and possibly still being at risk because the persecution was growing and it was great I think the challenge that we face here when we look at the story of Saul is many times we might look at the lost out there, look at their past and think, you know what, there might be no hope for them. No, God can change any person. If your attitude is past the fact that you think that God does not have, that there's no hope for this lost person, then the next hurdle that you need to overcome is, can I say, pulling up your socks, be bold, and God convicts you to talk to that person even though it might risk you your life, you will preach the gospel. You will obey and you will trust him for the boldness. The next hurdle will be to continue to disciple and be there for young Christians. As a church, collectively, we need to be there for them. I know when we take in a new member, one of the things that we say is that it is a new member of our church and we are to Take care of them, pray for them, edify them, be there for them. If we spot sin, guys in love, we must go there and point it out. Tell them about it. But what if they're not a member? What if they're just a young Christian that has become eager for the Lord? And it might even be risky for you to do. Are you willing to go that far? as proclaim the gospel and disciple this person regardless of the current situation and circumstances. The amazing thing is not everybody, but someone that you disciple might just become like Saul and become Paul, a great missionary used by God in the lives of thousands of people and their lives are changed in an instance as they hear the gospel and Christ touches them and points them towards this and that they can repent of it. And it started with you 
in something as small as leading them to baptism after Christ has done their work. Let's be a church. Let's fulfill our function that we are to do now that we are saved. Let's guard the gospel. Let's proclaim it to the world because of what it has done for us. If you don't know what the gospel has done for you personally, I'm urging you this morning to go to God. Go to scripture and find out how bad your sin is in front of this holy God. It is an amazing thing that God has done sending Jesus Christ. I was thinking just the other day about Ananias and Sapphira, how God, just like that, killed them for lying against the Holy Spirit. I was thinking of the flood, how in 40 days and 40 nights, God wipes out the entire world except for eight. One family. Why is God not wiping us out? Why did God not just kill Adam and Eve in the start when they sinned against him? Why did God have to go and kill an innocent animal so that Adam and Eve can be covered? The first sacrifice to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. Why did God have to do that? Because God is love. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. And if we understand that what Christ has done is the reason why we are alive today, we cannot but say, wow, amazing. I hope going forward and as we think of missions and as we think of the story of Paul, and there is so much more that we can learn from, from Saul that turned to Paul, I pray and ask that each one of us will take up our cross and follow Christ first that we will pick up our responsibility and our mission that Christ has sent us out to do, each one of us, and preach the gospel. You don't have to preach it amongst thousands and hundreds of people, but God will always connect you with people that are not saved. Are you bold for the gospel? I once heard somebody said, and this is what I want to close with, they said, you know what, I'm very eager for the gospel. I want to preach the gospel. I am just waiting for God to open doors for me. And I sat there and we said, have you spoken to a single person that's not saved? No. But God hasn't opened a door. So I said, what door are you waiting for? You are talking to this lost soul. Preach the gospel. Be a witness. There's no special amazing door that opens for you. The mere fact that God allows you to be in contact with an unbeliever, whether it be at work, on the street, in the stores, if the Holy Spirit prompts you to preach the gospel to that person, do it. It's the challenge going forward is to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. If you do not have a disciple... If you are not discipling somebody right now or have had one in the past, you are not fulfilling the Great Commission. If all you do is just tell people about the gospel and not have a disciple, you are not fulfilling the Great Commission. Have a disciple. Lead someone in the ways of the Lord. Take, even if it is a soul, and educate them, pray for them, lead them, and disciple them. And we close and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you this morning. Father, thank you that we can be reminded of 
your amazing work in the lives of people. Thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ. Father, that he became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, that we can be reconciled with you. Father, more than that, actually, thank you that you became flesh. Father, we stand in awe and amazement when we look at who we are before you. Father, that you do not kill us in an instance, despite our wrongdoings, despite us being enemies of you, despite us hating you and rebelling against you. Father, your creation that's turned against you, your mighty God. But Father, through what Christ has done and how Christ has touched us, we just want to thank you that we can know that we are reconciled with you. Thank you that you have changed us into this new being, to this new creation. And Father, we pray and ask that you will be with us and that you will guide us. Give us the strength, the boldness that we need to proclaim your gospel. And Father, that we can also boldly say that we know that all we need to know how real you are is that you have changed us. But Father, we know also that you have given us your word that, that helps us to live a life that glorifies you. And therefore, we pray and ask that as a church, that you will work in each one of us. Father, I want to ask that you will almost revive us again, that we will come back to this first love that we will recognize once again this amazing thing that has happened with us. Father, that as this gospel train has hit us, that we will go back to that and that we can't but share what has happened with us. Father, help us to be bold for the gospel. Help us to protect the gospel even with our lives. Help us to disciple those who are new amongst us. Father, that your name may be glorified in and through it in and through this church, and in and through our individual lives. Father, we thank you so much once again for your amazing grace that you have shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.